I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. When we step outside our back door into our gardens, you know, that is our first step into nature. And in a sense, it's the bridge between, you know, our world and the natural world. We are all going to be gardening in more extreme environments. We're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to be very resilient and in some ways more radical. Also, gardens are all about evolving and they are a constant changing picture. So while it can be sad when it happens initially, it does create the opportunity for trying and planting something new or just trying the same thing again. This past year, I think we all felt the impact of our changing climate. With temperatures reaching over 40 degrees last summer and then plunging deep into the negatives in December, it's clear our weather is becoming more and more extreme and unpredictable. And this, of course, takes a toll on our gardens. What can and will thrive here is shifting. And some of our most beloved plants like delphiniums and Himalayan poppies are struggling to make it through these challenging conditions and we're having to adapt. But also, and perhaps more importantly, the way we tend and care for our gardens takes a toll on our environment as well. Added together, our plots are about the size of Norfolk. That's a massive amount of green space that has the potential to store carbon, to promote biodiversity, to clean the air, to mitigate flood damage, to name but a few of the amazing superpowers of gardens. So today, we're going to be looking to the future. We're going to be exploring how we can create resilient gardens that can flourish for years to come, while also serving their local ecosystems. We'll start off with a blueprint. Renowned landscape and garden designer Tom Massey will share his approach to designing sustainable gardens that persevere. Before taking a trip to Wisley to see which plants survived the challenges of 2022. We'll then get into specifics. RHS advisor Esther Wolfe will share her tips on what you can do now to build up your garden's resilience to climate change. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Tom Massey is a big name in the garden design world. He's won numerous awards, including an RHS gold medal at Chelsea for his Yo Valley Organic Garden in 2021 and a silver medal for his Lemon Tree Trust Garden in 2018. He's known for designing with an eye towards sustainability, thinking critically about how gardens can add to their surrounding environment while welcoming wildlife in. His new and first book, RHS Resilient Garden, Sustainable Gardening for a Changing Climate, is hot off the press. So today, as you might have guessed, Tom's here with us to give a sneak peek into designing for resilience. I begin the book Resilient Garden with this chapter about radical gardening. And I think that really came through a trip to a refugee camp in 2018. This was for a garden at Chelsea for the Lemon Tree Trust. And the Lemon Tree Trust work in refugee camps to 
help people to garden and grow. So I went out to the camp in northern Kurdish Iraq on the Syrian border to speak to refugees, you know, gardener to gardener, to really try and find out why it was that they were growing, what they were growing, and how they were finding the experience of growing in this very harsh camp environment. So the climate there is very cold nights, very cold in the winter, but extremely hot and exposed and kind of arid in the summer. So very low water, real extremes of temperature. So really quite a kind of radical environment to be trying to grow and garden in. But people were still, as soon as they were arriving in some cases, starting to set up gardens, starting to plant seeds, starting to grow things. And I was really intrigued as to why people were doing that. I, I mean, I could kind of understand it, but it was really fascinating to hear about, you know, the reasons that people were gardening or growing. And it wasn't just to produce food. You know, obviously food is a key aspect. And obviously, you know, it's difficult if you've lost everything, you need to provide food for your family. But people were also growing for the ornamental value or for the reminder of home. So some people had this incredible presence of mind to take a cutting of their favorite rose or to take seeds from their favorite herbs, bring them with them literally as they are fleeing for their lives and then plant them in the ground as soon as they're arriving to create this reminder of home and this sense of normality in this environment that was just so tumultuous and chaotic. But gardening was restoring this sense of peace in a way and a sense of order in a very chaotic time. That experience of visiting that refugee camp and that idea of these radical gardeners, for me, was quite an interesting analogy for the challenges we're all going to face with the climate emergency. We are all going to be gardening in more extreme environments. We're going to have to adapt, we're going to have to be very resilient and in some ways more radical in order to, you know, to design gardens that are resilient and can withstand the effects of climate change in a sustainable way. I think a resilient garden essentially is a garden that's able to recover from extreme events. So if there was a heat wave or a drought, if it wasn't resilient, all the plants would die. You'd have to start again from zero. A resilient garden can recover, can withstand the effects of climate change. We can't really be gardening in the same way as we were. You know, there is less access to water. Hosepipe bans are going to become more frequent. Extreme weather events are going to become more common. We need to really change the way that we think about our landscape to be able to tolerate and deal with these events. There has historically been this kind of movement that, you know, you should only ever plant native plants. Native plants are the best. You should never plant anything non-native. But non-native plants can really extend the season of flowering or can provide more resilience. So if you look to plants from the Mediterranean, for example, you know, those plants are already adapted to a much hotter, drier climate. So the vegetation in the UK is going to change over time. You know, this idea of native and non-native is really kind of transient. Historically, again, there's been this kind of advice, you can do what you want. You can just grab anything from any magazine, any photograph, and just put that in your garden and that'll be fine. You can do that, but it's not going to be resilient and it's not going to be sustainable if it isn't the right type of planting scheme or type of design for the space that you have. So Beth Chateau's old adage of right plant, right place, that's really still incredibly vital to consider. You, know, you need to design a planting scheme that is going to be suitable for the space that you are putting the plant into. In the book, there's these two example resilient gardens, I suppose. There's a front and a back garden of a typical residential house. And the idea is that the front garden is very open and very exposed. There's a busy road that runs alongside it, so it's quite polluted. So this space in the sort of pre-designed scheme 
is very open. It's completely paved. There's hardly any planting. There's just a small kind of scrubby hedge. There's no shading for the house. It's south-facing, so it's, it's very blasted by sun. I mean, this is very typical. You see this everywhere. You know, people just pave their front gardens completely because they think parking space is the most important aspect. You know, it adds value to the house. So in the resilient sort of solution to this space, the paving is swapped for a recycled aggregate gravel. So using reclaimed or upcycled materials is really worthwhile. It's low carbon. The carbon has already been expended in producing that materials. So gravel is also permeable. And under that permeable gravel is a rainwater harvesting system that captures rainwater falling on the garden and off the roof and then has this wicking system. So when the soil is dry, water from the tank is wicked up into the dry soil, which keeps it moist in periods of drought. So also within the front space is this hedge that has been designed to trap particulate pollution. And this was developed in collaboration with the RHS science team who have been doing lots of studies into how plants can help trap and deal with pollution. So the hedge is dense and evergreen and many of the species have rough and hairy leaves which are actually very good at trapping those particulates. So they keep the levels of pollution in the garden down. Also bringing trees into a space. Trees and plants cool the air through transpiration. So as they draw moisture up from the ground, it's then released into the air and that cools the air around them. And then lots more planting is incorporated as well and a really biodiverse mix. So many different species, you know, biodiversity by its very nature is more resilient because there are more species that are more able to deal with a larger range of conditions. So then moving through to the back, We've got some paving that's made out of crushed sideways, so rubble. It's a kind of terrazzo-like product. The rubble is set in this cement-free binder and polished back to create this kind of speckled terrazzo-like effect. And again, it's thinking about ways in which you can use waste materials in a creative and artful way to elevate them. Also in the back garden is a swale feature, so a depression in the landscape essentially that traps and collects water that lands on the space. And again, providing water is really beneficial for many different types of wildlife, from amphibians to insects to larger wildlife as well. And then to create this kind of immersive space, the planting scheme is all themed around a forest garden or a food forest. So essentially you've got different layers of planting. You've got the canopy layer in the trees. You've got climbing plants that scramble up fences or climb up tree trunks. You've got a shrub layer. Then you've got a ground cover perennial layer. And then you've got roots and fungi layer. So the idea is that all these different layers mimic a natural forest and grow and intermingle together, but also the majority of the plants have some sort of purpose. So it can either be eaten by humans, provide food for wildlife, or provide food for pollinating insects. You can really be creative and bring this really immersive, biodiverse scheme into your garden. It doesn't have to just be what your neighbors have. It can be something quite dynamic and exciting. And I think if we all come together as gardeners, as growers, as designers, as architects, as engineers, if we all start to think in these terms and we all start to make small changes to the way that we do things, you know, the way that we garden, the way that we grow, the way that we design, that can lead to a huge effect. So I suppose for me, I see this as my small contribution to making a better world. Check out our show notes for a link to Tom's book. RHS Resilient Garden, which is out now. I really like Tom's idea about 
having a considered mix of native and non-native plants. Because I think as climate change takes hold, the idea of what is and isn't native and what should and shouldn't be here needs to evolve and adapt. There are studies that say our climate is already shifting by five kilometres a year and that London is going to have Barcelona's climate by 2050. The plants that survive now and thrive now might not necessarily be those that can cope with the challenges to come. But, of course, we still need to look at native plants as well. They have a really important role, particularly for wildlife. You know, the wildlife that's here at the moment is adapted to feed primarily on native plants. So I think it's important to kind of have that diversity in planting for what we have at the moment and then look to the future at the same time. As one of our recent podcast guests, Naoko Abe, said in the Blossom special that we did a few weeks ago, diversity builds resilience, and there are just so many examples of that, and I think this is a perfect encapsulation of it. Tom spoke about how a resilient garden is one that can recover. You don't have to start from scratch every time there's a harsh storm or a period of drought. Not everything's going to necessarily survive, but enough will make it through. So, next, we thought, why not check in at Wisley? See what's fared well and what's been a casualty of the extremes of 2022 to learn what might be better options going forward. My co-presenter and the RHS Chief Horticulturist, Guy Barter, spoke with Peter Jones, the garden manager for the Hardy Ornamental Team at Wisley, about what he's witnessed on the ground. So here we are at Wisley Garden, standing in the walled garden, taking some shelter from the very windy conditions today. And we're here with Peter Jones, who's garden manager for Hardy Ornamentals. Peter, because you cover so many areas and so many different plants and growing regimes, we thought you'd be the perfect person to ask about the effects of last year's dry, droughty summer and then the wet autumn with its plunges to freezing temperatures. Yes, it's certainly been a very interesting 12 months. I must admit, I was definitely one of those that was busy doing rain dances all throughout the summer as we were in the middle of that dry, desolate spell, constantly praying for rain. Being Surrey, we often call it the Surrey Sahara, where we get hardly any rain, and we have very sandy soil that dries out very quickly. And then as we went into a winter, we had nothing but rain, and we were constantly trying to battle with too soggy ground, especially where we were trying to get new grass to establish. So it's definitely been an interesting 12 months both from a management point of view, but also seeing what plants have been thriving and which ones have been barely surviving. And so, which plants have come through with flying colours? It's really been an excellent year for some of the slightly more traditional stalwarts. So, it's an amazing year for magnolias. Because we ended up with our frosts finishing a couple of weeks ago and we've gone into a milder period, all the magnolias are opening beautifully and there's no damage to the petals. They're looking stunning. Good old favourites like camellias, which have coped incredibly well in the drought conditions, have gone through and they've set flower beautifully because of that hot spell and now are flowering their socks off. And we're also coming up into cherry season and the cherry blossom, it, the trees are absolutely laden with flower bud. Some might even think that is a result of the hot summers maturing the wood, creating better flower set. And we're here in the box alternatives garden with lots of little hedges and I see some rather ominous looking gaps here. Have you experienced any difficulties in this patch? Well, yes, it's a slight tale of woe in our box alternatives garden. This area is set up as a parterre to show off all different alternatives to the common box, which people have been using for creating small hedging in their garden for decades. But more recently, it's been struggling with a series of issues and 
In this area, we are looking at showcasing different types of plants to give alternatives. So we've got things from Taxis Baccata, so cultivars of yew, Podocarpus, which is a type of evergreen conifer. These have done very well, actually, and they've come out of the end of our really cold winter very well. Other plants which have fared not so well are particularly Pittosporum, which is a story throughout the whole of the garden. Pittosporums have proved themselves really good plants for clipping and creating these small hedges over the last seven years. But we had that really dramatic cold spell where we had a week of frost and temperatures below minus eight. And that really did finish off a lot of our Pittosporums throughout the garden, especially the smaller plants. So here I have Pittosporum wearum gold, and as you can see, it's completely defoliated and it is but a naked skeleton of branches. Now, what we've been telling our visitors to do, as they do have a Pittosporum, hope is not always lost. In some uh, instances, they will regrow again. So if you do the age-old test of going with your fingernail and scraping the bark a bit lower down, and if you find some green colouring underneath the top layer, underneath the cambium layer, there is a possibility that that plant will regrow and regrow from where the the stem is still alive. Sadly, the frost was so strong here that these killed the plants right down to the ground, so these are going to have to come out and be replaced. Mm. Have you got a, a list of candidates to replace them? Obviously, Pittosporum has lost its place in your garden. Well, you say lost its place. We are not quite ready to give up on that plant yet. We've certainly been growing Pittosporums in the garden for decades, and so I think they're worth persevering with and trying, but maybe we think about how we would use them in the garden. Maybe they need to be in a slightly more sheltered spot rather than something out in the wide open. Well, it's by no means a tale of gloom here. There's lots of things that are looking really good. Have you got any things here that have really impressed you? So a plant which has done really well for us in the box alternatives is Podocarpus. This is a small leaved evergreen conifer and we're in front of a really lovely one called County Park Fire. And so these podocarpus, they can be clipped quite tightly. They look a little bit almost like a, a yew, a taxus. The interesting thing about some of these podocarpus is the colour of the foliage changes throughout the season. So in the winter, they can go a more burnished kind of bronze or a purple colour. And as we go into the spring, they'll go back to a nice dark, lush green. So they can add that extra dimension to your garden. Mm. Now, every head gardener, indeed every garden manager, likes to push the boundaries a bit with some tender plants, and I expect you're the same. Are there any tender plants that you planted that you feel a triumph of your skill? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. So old favourites like rosemary, we have had large swathes of rosemary which have completely failed, and you can see where in that cold spell they blew the bark off the stem. Some cultivars have actually been completely unscathed. So there's a cultivar called Foxtail, which looks like it's brand new. And I think some of this has got to do with where the plant has been grown and bred, and depending on which kind of altitude it has come on in its country of origin. I feel your pain. I've lost all but one of my rosemaries. <laughs> oh dear, yes. And it's knowing what to do, isn't it? I think it's one of those that we can't really do without in the garden, mm. but maybe, if you are in a place where you can see there's a large variety, such as the Gardener's Wisley, come and have a look and see which ones are doing well, and that might kind of dictate what you choose in the future. Mm. I'm afraid I've invested in a packet of rosemary seeds, so we'll see what happens. Oh, well, you never know, you might get the best seedling out of the bunch. There's a chance, yes. <laughs> Well, Peter, this is an episode about resilience. Can you suggest any ways people can change their gardening practice to enhance the resilience of their gardens? 
So I think from my experience at Wisley, I've noticed that we're getting more and more extremes in our weather patterns. So with that in mind, it really does limit what we can do, which will cover all those bases. So from a gardener point of view, I'd say our best thing that we can do is make sure we're planting a variety of things. So don't be afraid to try slightly more Mediterranean plants but then accept that you might on occasion get a cold winter which might knock them back. And at the same time, also look at plants which are slightly more able to cope with those colder conditions, such as, say, camellias or magnolia grandifloras, those really bulletproof plants. When I first came to Wisley, which was a long time ago, we planted a Mediterranean garden and we looked at the weather data and we thought that every 10 years that would be killed by frost. Well, that garden is still going, so it does suggest that persistence is a good policy in the face of these losses. What do you think? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Even though we've lost some things like pittosporums or bottle brushes, the calistamon, it's not going to stop us from trying them and planting them again. And also, gardens are all about evolving and they are a constant changing picture. So while it can be sad when it happens initially, it does create the opportunity for trying and planting something new or just trying the same thing again. Well, that's a very encouraging message, Peter. I shall certainly go home to my garden and look at my devastated rosemary and other tender plants and make my decisions on the basis of your hopeful advice there. It's been a pleasure taking you around, Guy. Thank you very much. That was Guy Barter and Peter Jones. It was interesting to hear about the box trial garden at Wisley and how different things responded differently to the conditions. I saw it the other week and the pittosporums, they were just, they were biscuit coloured and pittosporum is not supposed to be biscuit coloured in March. They were absolutely hammered. But Peter made that point of just because we've had one bad year doesn't mean that we have to abandon these plants altogether and that kind of speaks to something that I think we're going to have to get used to which is changing our mindset as gardeners because we're going to have this variable climate we need to accept that you know the occasional failure will happen and that's just part of life we can't assume that there will be a certain palette of plants that will survive no matter what in every garden for our final story of the day we're going to chat with RHS advisor Esther Wolf. She'll be giving her tried and tested tips for the ways we can better adapt to and mitigate against climate change today. So the way I tend to think of it, given the background that I've got in sustainability, is I do think about the climate mitigation actions that we can take as gardeners, meaning the things that we can do to try and slow the pace of climate change, to try and combat climate change compared to the kinds of adaptation actions that we can also take to cope with the effects of climate change that are already with us and are already real. So if we were to start with climate mitigation, I would put in this basket things like improving the management of our soil. You know, soil is a massive carbon sink. It absorbs carbon and it can best do that if it is left undisturbed. So the more we dig our gardens, the more we turn the soil, the more it's going to release carbon and the less effective it's going to be as a carbon sink. So the idea of moving away from digging, reduced cultivation of the garden as much as possible, it would be one step I think we could take. Another one is eliminating peat use in the garden. Peat, again, is a very valuable carbon sink. And again, our use of peat in horticulture for composts is resulting in you know, the cutting up of the peatlands and in that process, the release of carbon and 
the destruction of peat as a carbon sink. And so reducing or eliminating, should I say, peat in horticulture would be a really valuable mitigation step. And that's actually going to be taken out of our hands as a decision to make from next year because peat will be removed from garden composts that are available commercially to amateur growers. And the third thing I would say that we can do in terms of climate mitigation in our gardens is to try and reduce resource intensive inputs. So, for example, buying in composts, buying in fertilisers or other chemicals which are very, very carbon intensive to produce, reducing our reliance on tap water, which again has quite an energy input related to the purification of tap water. Reducing energy use directly, so reducing lighting, heating in the garden, reducing use of petrol or even electric power tools like hedge trimmers or even lawnmowers. And also thinking more carefully perhaps about the kinds of plants we're buying, you know, reducing the numbers of, for example, bedding plants that we might buy because these are produced in a very, very unsustainable way. And then if we think about climate adaptation in the garden, so this is adapting to the reality of climate change that is already with us. So impacts like drought or heat stress that we're seeing or at the other end of the scale, waterlogging, coping with things like that, you know, we're likely to see more disturbed weather patterns, more storms perhaps. So having little microclimates with you know, broken up with hedging is going to protect against harsh winds. It's going to protect against harsh sun and it's going to protect against late frosts. So the microclimate side of things is going to be one way of, of really helping. The next thing I would say is reducing cultivation, but also mulching your garden. So adding a mulch in the form of an organic matter like well-rotted compost or manure, just laying that on the surface of any bare soil you've got, laying it around your plants, taking care not to put it over the top of your plants, will really help to lock in moisture into the soil and to help that soil retain water over a longer period. It will reduce surface evaporation, which is really going to help your plants again as the summer comes on. Other things you can do, you can harvest rainwater, so installing water butts is going to be high on your list of priorities, I think. Choosing your moment when you water, so watering in the mornings so that plants have access to that water during the course of the day as they take up water due to transpirational pull in daylight hours. You can also water containerized plants in a more efficient way than just, you know, applying water from a watering can, for example. If the container is small enough, you could fill up a truck of water and just dunk your plants into it so that, you know, you're using the same truck of water for many different containers and allowing them to drain in that truck so that you don't lose water when you take them out again. Then I would say another impact is likely to be waterlogging at the other end of the scale. So some people do have, you know, gardens that tend to get a bit wet or, you know, take a long time to drain water away after a heavy period of rain. If you're growing in those conditions, you know, right plant, right place is the obvious way to go. So plants that can cope with naturally wet soils. But if you really want to grow something that can't be grown in very damp soils, then raised beds are the way to go. So raised beds will have better drainage and lift your plants up out of that waterlogged soil. Mulching, again, is going to help with waterlogging because the greater a volume of organic matter, the better the soil can both hold on to water, but also get rid of excess water. And lastly, I would say that if your garden is one of those gardens where you find that it's you know, prone to getting absolutely sodden in the winter and then baking dry in the summer, you can look at our list of plants for wet and dry soils. We do have a web page on this, which is quite useful for people to consult if they're struggling. You know, this is based on 
what our own members tell us about things that have done well in their gardens. So things like geranium roseanne, hemerocallis, daylilies, birch, the grass miscanthus, they can all cope with soils which get waterlogged in winter and dry out in summer. So that's worth looking into as well. When we step outside our back door into our gardens, you know, that is our first step into nature. And in a sense, it's the bridge between, you know, our world and the natural world. And so I think that the more people start to relax about having nature in their gardens, get excited perhaps about seeing, obviously, songbirds, but even other creatures too, you know, hopefully hedgehogs and so on, then I think the more people will start to appreciate that we are part of a, an ecosystem. You know, we don't stand alone, we're not separate. And hopefully as people get more interested in gardening and get more aware and more, perhaps more empathetic about, you know, if we're finding it stressful when it's boiling hot and we want to retreat inside, how on earth must it be for the nature in our gardens that has no way to escape or has to go out looking for water or looking for food sources despite the heat. And I think, you know, the more that people connect to their gardens and connect to the reality of the stresses their plants are under, the stresses their garden wildlife is under, hopefully the more they'll be incentivized to do to try to combat that. Thanks, Esther. Check out our show notes for RHS advice on gardening for a changing climate, as well as the list that Esther mentioned on plants that grow well in both wet and dry soils. Well, that's about it for today. If you're looking for things to do in the garden, there are loads at this time of year. It's pretty much a last chance to prune shrubby hydrangeas if you haven't done it already. It's a brilliant time to sow grass seed or repair your turf. It's also a good time to get planting those potatoes over the Easter weekend. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice 
monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs>